Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, today we come to probably one of the most famous stories in the book of Joshua. It's the story of the battle slash non-battle at Jericho. And uh, many, many kids are very familiar with this. They talk about it in children's church. Um, I heard a story of, of a woman that was talking about the battle of Jericho uh, in children's church. And she asked the children, she said, who tore down the walls of Jericho? Who destroyed the walls of Jericho? And one of the kids raised his hand and he said, I don't know who did it, but I promise you it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Other kid followed suit and said, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, right? You know, we kind of make this story of Jericho into a children's story. I'm guessing there are children's songs with motions and things like that uh, that you could show to me about this story of Jericho. But this is a very um, serious story. It's a very adult story. And it's actually a story that reveals to us a strategy for how we as Christians can live victorious lives. And so if you would, please open up to Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you'll need one. There should be a red one in the seat in front of you. If not, there's like a gajillion in the back. You can go get those. And if you don't own a Bible, that is for you to keep uh, from Jacobswell Church. But it's page 181 in the Red Bible. Just to recap the beginning of Joshua, because so much of it funnels into the story today. In Joshua chapter 1, the Lord commissions Joshua to be strong and courageous, to lead the people in and to conquer the land. In Joshua chapter 2, he sends spies into the land, specifically to Jericho, and Rahab the prostitute hides them in her house while the king is looking to put them to death. Joshua chapter 3 and 4, Israel, uh, well, the Lord stops the raging rivers of the Jordan River, and, and Israel crosses over to the other side. In Joshua chapter 5, which we covered last week, uh, before Israel takes Jericho, the Lord stops them to remind them through the sign of circumcision of whose they are, that they belong to the Lord, and to remind them of their salvation in, through the Passover meal, that the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt. And then finally, at the end of chapter 5, there's this amazingly cool story about this warrior that Joshua comes across and asks, Who are, are you for us or are you for them? And he says, neither. I am uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of God, and I am for the Lord. Bow down and worship. And we discovered this is most likely a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus. And so now it continues into chapter six. And as we hear the Lord speaking, it probably a decent chance that it is, in fact, that warrior uh, who is speaking to Joshua. But let's look together, Joshua chapter six, and we're gonna start with just the first two verses of Joshua chapter six. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that as we come to this passage today, that you will see, that we will see the victory that we have in Christ, and that we would walk as those who have victory more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We put this uh, picture up here before of Jericho. Uh, This is a rendering based on some archaeological digs, but you can see that Jericho is a double-walled, double-fortified city. Uh, The walls were about 11 and a half feet tall, so taller than a basketball hoop, and they were six and a half feet thick, which means you could probably drive a small car around the walls. That's how big they were. Uh, Jericho was the oldest city in the region by far, dating back to some say 9,500 BC, meaning that it stood for 8,000 years prior to Joshua chapter 6. If you do the math, that is 32 times longer than the United States has been around, and it is 16 times longer than the Roman Empire. This city was well-built. It was, for all intensive purposes, impenetrable, indestructible, and unconquerable. And that's what the 12 spies saw 40 years prior when they were looking in the flesh and not in faith. Jericho was a fortified fortress of wickedness, filled with all sorts of atrocities that we'll talk a little bit about today. Like Jericho, there are fortified fortresses of evil throughout the world. Whether it be terror groups in different parts of the world, or whether it be abortion clinics that are still killing babies, or whether it be the internet, which is saturated with pornography or the gender and sexual confusion that is being celebrated throughout our culture, there are well-fortified fortresses of evil in the world today. But if we were honest, we would also say there are well-fortified fortresses of evil in our own souls. There are things that we have dealt with and struggled with for years that seem unconquerable. Maybe you are a person who is paralyzed with anxiety or fear. Maybe you have addictions to alcohol or gluttony or pornography. Maybe you are a gossip or a slander. Maybe you struggle with anorexia or bulimia. Maybe suicidal thoughts. Maybe you are obsessed with consumerism and always buying the new trinket that comes out. Maybe there is someone in your life who has hurt you and it seems absolutely impossible to ever forgive them. Let me ask, what is your Jericho? What is that well-fortified fortress of evil that lives within you, that you feel helpless and hopeless to defeat. Well, today the Lord gives to us a strategy for victory, both for the Jerichos in the world, but also for the Jerichos in our own soul. And so the question I wanna ask is this, is how can we gain victory in our world and in our hearts? And the first is to obey the Lord's commands foolishly. Obey the Lord's commands foolishly. The Lord promises Joshua victory over Jericho. Look there again with me. Verse one says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand and its kings and mighty men of valor. Now, how would this come to pass? How would the Lord give Jericho Joshua and the people of Israel, victory over this well-fortified city. Well, the Lord says this to Joshua in private, one-on-one, verse three. 
you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Verse five, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Joshua had probably gone outside the walls of Jericho to create a strategy for taking Jericho. But here the Lord tells Joshua his strategy, his plan of attack for Jericho. And instead of invading the city, he decides the best way to defeat Jericho is with a parade. Imagine it. it right now it's, it's it's football playoffs for state high school. Imagine if, if you get to the state high school tournament and instead of the team taking the field, they send the marching band onto the field and say, go get them. This is what the Lord is calling Joshua to do. It is a silly plan. It is a foolish plan in the eyes of the world. Verse six continues. Joshua then repeats the commands to the people. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Now, this is what Joshua says to the people. How will they respond? Will they say that is ridiculous. What will they do? Verse 8, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpet blew continually. So if you look up here on the screen, you'll see a picture that someone put together of what it might have looked like for this band to be walking around Jericho. You see the armament in the front. You see the priest blowing horns. Here is the Ark of the Covenant being carried by other priests. And then there is the rear guard protecting the Ark of the Covenant. And they marched around the city the first day just one time. Uh, to give you a perspective of this, uh, it is thought that Jericho was about eight or nine acres uh, our property here at Jacob's Well Church, which expands maybe further than you think, is about 18 acres. And so it's about half the size of our acreage here at Jacob's Well Church. So to march around the city maybe took 30 minutes, okay? And so that's what they did. They marched around the city blowing the horns that God told them to do. Verse 10 continues. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And so it was the end of the first day. They marched around the city. They blew their horns. They didn't talk. And they came back to camp. Can you imagine what the discussion was like at the campfire that night? Can you imagine how the people may have been questioning the intelligence of Joshua, if not his very sanity. What in the world are we doing? We are a marching band going around a city. 
How is this going to accomplish anything? Again, it just would have seemed absolutely foolish to the people of Israel. Then we get to day two of the military campaign. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into camp. So they did for six days. So if you look back at this picture on the screen, you probably notice all of these people marching right here. But did you notice up on top of the walls, all of the people looking over? And this is a little bit of conjecture, but I can imagine on day one that people are just kind of befuddled as to what is going on, not sure what's happening, maybe even the first two days. But eventually, I'm guessing that they're going to start mocking Israel, saying, what are you doing? This is silly. This is foolish. Oh, you're going to attack us with your horns? Like, come on, bring it on. Come attack us, right? We got stuff to shoot at you over the walls. Why don't you come and fight us? And so certainly what was going on outside the walls of Jericho seemed absolutely Foolish to the people inside the walls of Jericho. It was basically a Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day parade again and again and again. Verse 15 continues. It says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So maybe it took about three, three and a half hours to do. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Again, the Lord's commands were seemingly senseless. But this was the very means by which God was going to give Israel victory over the stronghold of Jericho. My wife tells this story. She told it at community group. She told me a long time ago. She said, it's okay if I share it with you as well. But when she was in college, uh, all of her friends were going on spring break to this destination down south, I think somewhere in Mexico. And she really wanted to go because it sounded really great. Um, but her parents said no. And she was angry, uh, as I think most of us have experienced in our teenage years. She was angry, and she thought her parents didn't know any better, that they were foolish, that they were outdated, that they were clueless as to how much fun she would have. Well, later she found out what was happening down there uh, in spring break, and she grew to appreciate her parents saying no to her, saying, no, you aren't allowed to go there because there's all sorts of wickedness and evil and danger and depravity going on down there. And so she was so thankful in the long run uh, that her parents said no to her. It seemed foolish to her at first, but in the end, she saw the wisdom of it. All of us have been there, haven't we, as teenagers? If you are parents, you understand this concept that maybe you know a little bit more than your kids know, although they think you know nothing at all, Right? If this is true between a parent and a child, how much truer is this between us and God who created the entire universe and is the truth? You see, God's ways seem foolish to the world. 
but they are the path of victory for the people of God. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, the Lord says, pray without ceasing. Well, in the flesh, prayer seems like a waste of time. Prayer seems like we're just spouting things out into this vacant air that nothing is happening. Prayer seems meaningless and foolish and silly, but the Lord said, this is the means that I will conquer. I know a few years ago, I was praying with a group of folks outside an abortion clinic here in town, and you're just praying, you're asking, Lord, shut this place down. Lo and behold, a few years later, it shuts down. Prayer is effective means that God has prescribed that seems foolish to the world, but is good according to God. There are many other strange, seemingly foolish commands in the Bible. The black sheep of the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It seems so silly. Like, I need to get all the money I can get, right? Like, the Lord won't provide for me. I need to provide for myself. I can't rest, right? And like, children's sports, youth sports, those take priority over gathering together with the people of God to worship. It seems foolish to the world, but it's the plan of victory that God has prescribed. One more, chastity until marriage. It seems so outdated to the world that we are in. If you love someone, just be with them, right? I could keep going. I could offend us more. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Proverbs 3.7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's hard to do. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Friends, if you want to tear down the strongholds of evil in the world and in your heart, obey the Lord's commands that the world and even our flesh would dismiss as being foolish. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So that is the first way we can gain victory in our world and in our hearts. The second way is to obey the Lord's commands fully. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, and at, that time, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So here we have two commands for the people of God as they go into the city of Jericho to take over. The first is that they are to devote everything in the city. They are either to devote it to destruction, which means it's gonna burn, or they are gonna take the precious metals and devote it to the treasury of the Lord. The second command he gives is to spare Rahab and her family, to bring them out, to rescue them from this destruction. Now, in both of these commands, there is no wiggle room. The Lord, through Joshua, commands total and complete obedience. So let's see what happens next. Verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet and people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, 
and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Skip down to verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. If you want to live a victorious Christian life, not must we only follow the Lord's commands foolishly, but we must also follow them fully and completely and obediently, not in part, but in total. You know, earlier this year, my family, we got an above-ground pool, and um, I went online to read instructions on how you take care of a pool, and yet throughout the entire summer, we were battling algae in the pool. It was getting green and stuff like that. And it turns out that I was only obeying about 95% of the instructions. Uh, there was 5% of the instructions that I was not obeying, which is to put algicide into your pool. Some friends told us this. We put it in, and it cleared it right up. I wish I would have known it earlier. But you see, if you don't have full obedience, it still clouds everything that is in your life. The nation of Israel were nomads. They didn't have a bunch of extra stuff laying around. Most every nation would conquer a city to plunder the city and get the goods out of that city, like the oxen and the sheep. And yet the Lord says, Israel, trust me. Destroy everything in the city, and I will provide for you. And so they do, for the most part. You'll read next week. You'll hear about this next week. But there's one who doesn't, and it brings great ruin into the camp. Now, how does this apply to us? How do we apply this concept of not taking treasures that are to be devoted to the Lord? Well, that brings up another extremely offensive and foolish command of the Lord, which is tithing. I'm trying to offend all of you equally today, okay? You know, we don't like talking about money uh, because money is such an idol in our hearts and in our lives. It is something that we get defensive about. But the Lord calls us to tithe. Tithing seems foolish to the world. The world says, you don't have enough money to tithe. Or the world will say, you have too much money to tithe. They'll say, your life is hard. You work hard for that. The Lord will not provide for you. You must keep it all to yourself. And yet the Lord is very clear in Scripture in his command requiring a tithe. He actually tells us to test him on it. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says this. It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby, and then here's the only time God ever says this in the scriptures, therefore, thereby, put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In the New Testament, Jesus reaffirms tithing in Luke chapter 11. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. These you ought to have done, that is, tithe from your harvest without neglecting the others. Church, God is calling you to put him to the test. He's calling you to give a tithe of what you earn to the church, to ministry, and see if you don't receive the blessings of obedience. Remember, one reason the Lord had called Israel to 
devote everything to destruction was so that they had to depend on God showing up to provide for their needs. In the same way, the Lord says, test me on this. Give as I have called you to do. Test me on this and depend on me to provide for all of your needs in your life. If you broaden this out a little bit, maybe it's not tithing, but maybe there are other things in your life that you say, you know what, God, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that, right? There's this one thing that I refuse to surrender to you. If you want to live a victorious Christian life, you're called to obey the Lord's commands foolishly. You're called to obey the Lord's commands fully. And finally, you are called to obey the Lord's commands faith-filledly. Faith-filledly. Look at verse one with me again, verse one and two. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given. Now I will give, but I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. This term I have given is what theologians call the prophetic perfect tense. It is used by God to describe future events that are so certain to happen that he refers to them as if they have already been completed. By doing this, the Lord is telling Joshua and telling Israel that they are going to fight a battle that he has already won. The Lord is saying, it is as good as done. You will be successful. And in response, we see that faith filled Joshua and the Israelites not only march around the city for seven days, but on the seventh day, as the walls are to come down, look at what happens in verse 16. It says, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given, perfect tense, already completed. The Lord has given you the city. Then skip down to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The people fought boldly. They fought bravely. They fought confidently. They, felt they fought faith-filledly because they knew that the Lord had already given them the victory. Think of it this way. I know uh, there are groups that like to reenact Civil War battles. I personally don't get it. I don't understand the attraction of it, but there are people who love to do this. When the trumpet is blown and when the battle begins, one side is a lot more confident than the other, right? Because they already know how the battle is going to turn out. It's already happened. They know the battle has already been won, that they are on the winning side. And so they go forward and they fight knowing that they are going to be victorious. It is a sure thing. Let me ask, what are the evil strongholds in your life? If you are a Christian, I have good news for you. If you are in Christ, you have already been set free from the power of sin. It no longer has ownership over you. It no longer has dominion over you. The battle has already been won. Jesus says in John 8, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 6, which I think will be up here on the screen, says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him being Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has 
been set free. Perfect tense. Has been set free. It's already been completed in Christ. Has been set free from sin. Christian, if there are strongholds of sin in your life, it is not because God has not yet freed you from that sin. It is because you, as a free person, have chosen to be enslaved to sin. Now, don't get me wrong. I struggle with sin just like you do. I'm not saying that I'm perfect or that any of us are perfect. But when we choose sin, we are actually doing it as free people who have chosen to enslave ourselves once again because we have been made free from the power of sin in Christ. And not only have we been made free from the power of sin in Christ, we have also, more importantly, been freed from the penalty of sin in Christ. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now, when we read this verse, it is very disturbing to us at first. It's verses like this that make people say, I can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. You know, we wonder how a good God could wipe out innocent men and women and children especially in light of what's happening around the world today. It almost seems like God is calling them to this Hamas terror attack. And so I want to give a little bit of context. In Genesis chapter 15, 600 years prior to Joshua chapter 6, after the Lord promised Abraham and his descendants that they would take the land of Canaan, he says this in Genesis 15, 16. It says, and they shall come back here. That is, your descendants shall come back to the promised land in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, talking about the people west of the Jordan River, is not yet complete. It's not yet complete. In other words, the Lord delays his promise of the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants for 600 years so that the sin of the Amorites, which includes the people of Jericho might fill up to the level that is deserving of national judgments. And indeed, throughout the Old Testament, we see the Amorites are a horrendous people. Not only did they worship false gods, but they killed their babies as sacrifices and worship services, something even Americans would be appalled at. Furthermore, we know that they, they, they participated in all sorts of sexual perversion. They were sleeping with their family members, sleeping with people of the same gender, and yes, even sleeping with animals. This was a wicked and depraved people. They were the Hamas. They were the ruthless one. And God's judgment has come in the form of death, which is what they deserved. God's judgment is always just. It is always right. And it is always good. And here's the thing. Not only did Jericho deserve the judgment of death for their sin, but the Bible says, you do too, and so do I. Romans 1, 29, describing us apart from Christ, says this, they were filled with all measure of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. I get it, that's me. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 6.23 says it much shorter. It says the wages of sin is death. Friends, the fact that we are living and breathing right now 
is an expression of God's mercy and grace and love. Because according to the Bible, because of our sin, because of our wickedness, all of us deserve death, not only now, but also for eternity. And so what hope is there for us? If we deserve death, if our sin deserves death, if our wickedness deserves death, what hope is there for us? Well, do you know who's among the worst of the worst in Jericho? It is a woman named Rahab. Rahab, who the Bible calls again and again a prostitute, is probably a woman who has killed half a dozen children that she has birthed, as well as worshiped false gods, But unlike the rest of the people of Jericho, she switches sides. Do you remember in Joshua chapter two, the spies come in and the king's men come to capture them at Rahab's life, at Rahab's house, and at the risk of her own life, in great faith, she hides them. And she proclaims her faith in the Lord as God over all nations. And then she pleads for mercy and grace and salvation that she would be rescued when the judgment of death sweeps into Jericho and it is granted upon her. We see this in verse 22. Look there with me. It says, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house. Doesn't even call her Rahab. Showing us the extent of God's grace. Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, just as the Lord commanded. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. I love that term, saved alive. It seems redundant, doesn't it? Could have just said saved, but they were saved alive. Continues, says, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. What do we learn in this passage? We learn that the God of justice is also the God of amazing grace. We learn that because of their sin, all the people of Jericho deserve to die, including Rahab. But because of her faith in the Lord, not because of her morality, but because of her faith in the Lord, she was saved alive. And not only was she saved alive, but she lived alive as she enjoyed the benefits and the blessing of the Lord of being part of the community of the people of God. If you remember, she married a prince of Judah, later giving birth uh, to a son, to a son that gave birth to the, sorry, what? Descendant of David, King David, who's also the descendant of Christ. We read about her victorious faith and the victorious faith of the Israelites in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 30 says, By faith, not by works, but by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled for seven days. By faith, not by works, but by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish. She was saved alive with those who were disobedient, but she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Friends, if you are not a Christian, you are under the just judgment of God. Death is circling around your city because your sin deserves justice. It deserves death. 
With that said, I have good news today. The same God who judges sinners saves sinners. Sinners like Rahab, sinners like you, sinners like me. And the salvation comes not when we clean our life up and get our act in order, but it comes instantaneously when by faith we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and then rose on the third day victorious to conquer both the power of sin and the penalty of sin. So how can we gain victory in our world and in our hearts over the strongholds of evil? Through faith, trusting in the promises of God. Let me end by covering just the final two verses of this chapter. Look at verse 26 with me. So it's Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall, be, shall he lay its foundations and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Why do you think Joshua proclaimed that that a curse would come upon anyone who rebuilds the city, that, that their sons would die. By the way, this actually comes to pass in 1 Kings 16. But why do you think he does this? Why does he not want anyone to rebuild the city of Jericho? Well, it's because the city of Jericho served as a billboard of the power of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord and the wickedness of sin. I remember when I was in high school, I went to Parkway West High School in St. Louis, Missouri, and from the main road to the campus, it was a long driveway to get there. And I remember at one point in time, they parked a car uh, on the side of the road, and it looks something like this. Maybe you've seen something like this. Do I have a picture there? Nope, I don't. Okay, I thought I did. Wait, 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 wait for it. Wait for it. We'll see. So it was a car. There it is. Okay, there you go. So it was a car. Maybe you've seen something like this, right? It's a car that is all smashed in from every side, just like completely destroyed. And then up above it says, don't drive impaired. I think on our campus said, don't drive drunk, right? No drunk driving. This is what happens. And they put that out in front to show the destructiveness of drunk driving, right? What happens when you lead a life of rebellion? In the same way, Jericho, in all of its ruins, was to be a billboard, to be a sign to the people, to remind them, to remind them of the Lord's power, of the Lord's hatred of sin and evil, and of the Lord's great salvation to all who believe. Friends, we may not be able to see the ruins of Jericho, but we can look to the ruins of the cross as a reminder of the Lord's power, of the Lord's hatred of evil, and the Lord's great salvation for all who believe. If you want victory over the strongholds of evil in this world and in your heart, obey the commands of the Lord foolishly, for the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. Obey the Lord's commands fully, surrendering all of you to all of God, and obey the Lord's commands faithfully, looking to the cross, with your heart set upon the famous one, the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today and, and we confess there are strongholds in our life of fear, of sin, of addiction. And God, we need freedom. And we are thankful that in Christ you have set us free. Lord, pray that you would help us walk in that freedom. 
Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you, Jesus, pray, God, that they would hear this warning of the destruction of Jericho. And like Rahab, they would turn to you and trust in you and plead for your mercy and grace and receive it because, Lord, you say that whoever confesses their sins, you are faithful to forgive. You will forgive their sins if they confess it to you. And so, God, pray through your spirit that you would draw people to yourself today and that you would lead us in lives that walk in the victory of the cross and the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.